Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. Greetings and welcome to another introduction to the latest episode of the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. I'm your host, Noah, and I'm going to do a little bit of housekeeping as usual right up front and ask you if you appreciate this program. Uh, if you want to support us, please go to patreon.com slash taijireality, T-A-I-J-I-R-E-A-L-I-T-Y. Or if you just want to help us out a little bit and don't want to throw any uh, currency our way, uh, you can rate us on iTunes or write a review or tell your friends. All those things will assist in making me believe that this is worthwhile to continue doing. I think uh, this episode is extremely interesting. I am pleased to welcome a returning guest, Jeff, who discerning listeners will recognize as the voice of the Assembly of Silence introduction. He also is a member of the Assembly of Science, which we have uh, only produced one episode of so far, but we do hope and there is the promise of future episodes down the line. Uh, Jeff and I have recorded a few sessions right now, and actually this is the second session. The first one is so long and so difficult to break into pieces that I'm going to save it for later because it requires more work to figure out how to make it a, a manageable listen. Uh, this one, it looked like it was going to be an hour, and I thought, this is great. We're going to be an hour, and then... Something happened, the next thing you know, another 40 minutes went by. So it's still a pretty long episode, but worth every second, I believe. So what I've decided to do is what I threatened to do several episodes ago, and I've taken that last 40 minutes and put them on Patreon, just for the those who support the show. So if you're really interested in hearing the last 40 minutes, it's... I'm going to, at the end of this episode, I'm going to give you a little taste of what it's about. I'll mention some of the things we cover. It gets pretty hardcore. I think we really delve deep in those last 40 minutes. So those of you who are dedicated rabbit hole divers, I hope you'll consider $1 a month, $12 a year, cancel any time, and... Uh, and you can live with the knowledge that you're helping to support this effort. And I hope that there will be a rapidly growing uh, body of special materials for those who decide to take the plunge. Okay, enough said. Enjoy the episode. That's not bad. I think uh, I'll bring you up a little bit more here. Yeah. On cue. Right. <laughs> Thus begins another day on planet Earth. <laughs> yep. Here we are. Good morning, good afternoon to you, sir. Good it's a pleasure to have you back it. here. Thank you. Can you hear yourself okay on those little earbuds there? I actually can. It sounds oh. really... I like... I like it changes it, right? It kind of makes you... Well, one thing, it makes you aware of the tabletop, because when we start knocking on this thing, right. I can usually filter it out with a low-pass, uh, with a high-pass filter, but... um. Yeah, it's another one of those things, like, maybe, I guess basically what you do is you get a shock mount mic. Right. 
you know, on one of those booms. <laughs> so something to aspire to in the future. But mm-hmm. now this is, you know, this is some backwoods podcasting here. <laughs> right. Chickens, dogs. Bear was what I experienced yesterday. Really? Yes. Tell me about that. My I dogs have... treated, well, the, the bear was already in the tree. That's how I knew it was a bear because mm-hmm. I heard a huge commotion coming from the woods wow. I was walking my dogs and I was like oh, there's a bear over there and my dogs are going to hear it in a minute and run from way over there to way over here which they did and it was of course through all kinds of blackberries and poison oak that I was not about to navigate in my shorts and uh, sandals and uh, the bear came down out of the tree they chased it through the woods it got up another tree and this was even further away from where I was so I was running through the blackberries and the poison oak trying to figure out how I was going to keep my dogs from getting killed by this bear <laughs> it was not a mother with cubs so it was not going to attack them and it just Good. the bear was making a lot of noise and that's what brought attention to it oh yeah I mean I, I heard it before the dogs heard it because they were on the other side they were behind me when I when I came up there it's funny I guess if you're a bear you don't worry about that kind of stuff but when I'm out in the woods I'm aware of the noise that I'm making and I'm always thinking boy we make a lot of noise just walking through the woods and animals are really good at walking through without making that much noise I mean they do make some noise but I wonder to what extent they're actually thinking hey we shouldn't make so much noise while we're out here and that's like kind of a a pressure situation I mean there's a fair amount. Of, I think about deer. You know, they just seem to be super anxious all the time. So I wonder if that's just like the nature of their life experience—that they're just freaking worried about every single moment and every single move. It seems like prey animals have that. Yeah. There's that uh, that saying I see sometimes. It's it's in managers' offices when you're working in a corporate environment. It says, you know, it doesn't matter when you wake up in the morning or if you're a lion or a gazelle you better be running (laughs) (laughs) that's funny but uh yeah i think that the deer the the prey animal mentality um is kind of pervasive you look at how i i talked to my friend um on the farm who's got a horse and he says yeah that's a that's a prey animal like the wrong kind of maneuver with a rope or a something falling in the wrong place and it like a horse will get a a a spook and it'll be running and there'll be a rope dragging behind it. He said that, that horse thinks that rope is gonna eat it. Right. It's a prey animal. It right. gets that flight instinct. Yeah, it's um, amazing how deep the instincts are. Mm-hmm. And how irrational they are. I've been listening to a guy whose name is I'll probably have to insert it later. Um, he's a, uh, professor of, oh, fuck, I'm really, uh, bad on the information right now. His whole thing is that, um, an accurate perception of what's going on in reality is not a good survival, um, strategy. Hmm. And I don't think that makes any sense. <laughs> Well, how is he defining what accurate what what accuracy is when it comes to perception? Well, he's saying like, you know, most creatures don't have an accurate perception of what's going on in their environment. So, for example, the horse thinks that it's being chased by a predator when it's just a freaking rope tied around its neck dragging in the ground behind it. Right. And the example that he uses, like his first example is a beetle that um 
has an attraction to the opposite sex, and that attraction basically is towards an object that is brown and sort of knobby. Uh-huh. But apparently, like, size matters. Like, the bigger it is, the better. And so this beetle is desperately trying to mate with these uh, beverage bottles. Mm. that are, I think it's in Australia, if I remember correctly, and they're just littered everywhere. And so the species is actually in trouble because it's kind of programmed to... <laughs> reproduce with the largest brown knobby thing it can find and that happens to be a bottle nowadays and sort of lost interest in the actual opposite sex now as far as i'm concerned that's actually proof of the opposite that it's an accurate perception of what's really going on that is the real survival strategy i mean if the beetle could figure out what it's doing and if the horse understood that Mm -hmm. the rope was not trying to chase it it seems like that would that would confer a uh an advantage (laughs) <laughs> but that's not this guy's theory. This guy's theory is that actually, you know, maybe what it has to do is that fundamentally reality is unknowable. And so we're always kind of spending a lot of calories in order to try and figure out what it is. And those calories could be going towards just getting more calories, something like that. Right. So like maybe on a net basis, energy efficiency type of thing, you would do better to just forage. But it seems like, you know, that's there are moments in evolutionary history where that doesn't really work out so well. It reminds me of the whole reducing valve theory of consciousness and and perception, which is that there is so much information around us, and I I think this probably applies to all other species that have perception, um, that we can't absorb it all. Even, even Even if our senses were just pulled for what's coming in along them or what's potentially coming in along them. We can't possibly process all that information. So our our consciousness reduces that information down to a subset that we can deal with. Um, and so in, it's a filtering it's a filter. process. Yeah. And uh, this is one of the theories that people talk about when they talk about um, consciousness altering plant substances, uh, particularly ones that are known as uh, hallucinogens or psychedelics or entheogens. They tend to open the filter a little bit, and so right. you you get information that's actually there, but you're not normally able to perceive or process. Right, that's uh, like the Alice Huxley doors of perception type of thing, exactly. which, which is what the doors were, were named after. Right. Um, yeah, that seems to be. Uh, our, there, there's that lecture uh, from the woman who was a um, neurologist who had a uh, a brain seizure, had a stroke. And um, she knew what she was going through. So she has a very detailed way of describing that process. And basically what she says is what happened is that all of the filtering mechanisms were gone. And, like, experience was just streaming in without any way to parse it, essentially. And, And it made it very difficult to do anything. Like, she needed to call for help. She needed to use a phone. And so she figured out how to do it, but all of the normal mechanisms that she would have ordinarily done to use the phone Mm. and to make the symbols on the phone understand what they were and correlate them to a number that she would be able to call that would reach someone, you know? All those things were like things she had to figure out along the way. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) It's a super interesting talk, but the upshot of it is that she feels that Essentially, in order to exist, we have to filter out an incredible amount of experience. Mm-hmm. 
And it does seem that human beings, at least, we distinguish ourselves by attempting to transcend those limitations in various ways, you know, and the, the, uh, the psychedelic experience is one of them and meditation practice is another one. And, uh, and it seems that on some level, at least some subset of, of uh, humanity is always trying to understand. And that understanding involves dealing with the fact that our understanding is by definition limited. But that is a broad understanding. So the, right. the broadest understanding is realizing that this is the situation we're in where we have to rely on filters in order to be able to navigate. But at the same time, there is a kind of realm of experience somewhat available to us. We may not be able to understand it the way that we think we understand other things, but it's mm-hmm. we can still have some kind of an experience of a comparatively unfiltered reality and that that fundamentally changes us. You could say maybe in some way or another that's like our evolutionary driver. Right. We're, we're constantly being confronted with novel situations because we're a species that changes things a lot. So we've changed the surface of the earth and our uh, social organizations have changed a lot and we have this technology that's changed everything so much and, and all of those changes require a different mindset. So we have to be very adaptive in our thinking, so we have to be very open to things that are new. And that realm of the unknowable is where all the new stuff is. Right. <laughs> it's like a question I ask people when the, when the topic of evolution comes up. And huh. I say, well, if, if you believe in evolution, what do you think happens to that process when a species becomes aware of that process? How does that change? Right. And it's it's kind of a one of those questions of partial differential equations when you're talking about consciousness and feedback loops and awareness and behavior. Um, I, I'm not saying that I can draw any conclusions yet after you know looking at humanity for the course of my life. But it doesn't seem like it's given us any particular wisdom about how to behave. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I've also been looking into the whole evolutionary debate, you right. could say. And there are some really interesting things going on in that world right now. Uh-huh. There are some very powerful challenges being made to the Darwinian conception of evolution. Right. In particular, around the mechanism of of evolutionary adaptation because basically Darwin says it's natural selection on the basis of random mutant mutations, right? Right. It's part, and, of, part of the underlying theory. And and there's some real problems with that because if you just look at the math, like the possibilities, what, what, what are the likelihoods of having an adaptive evolutionary mutation occur, they're extraordinarily low. Mutations tend not to be functional. Mm-hmm. They tend to uh, head the opposite direction. And then, you know, if you're talking about a change in an already existing organism, then the, you know, there's some evidence to suggest that mutations can do that, but how do you explain the original organization of the organism? And th- there's this one guy who uses the flagellum of a, of a uh, single-celled organism as an example, because mm-hmm. it's a, it's a freaking machine. It's 
super well designed right. and it's got a lot of different parts and all those parts basically have to work together and kind of be designed together in order for it to function. So the idea that somehow or another you would get an assembly like that from randomness is pretty much inconceivable. Right. You know, so it seems that what we're increasingly being confronted with is is consciousness and intent that that a being in a particular environment, in a location of space and time, is going to take what it is able to experience, given its sensory apparatus, and try to make the best of it, you know, <laughs> do something with it. And uh, taking the materials at hand and assembling it into some kind of a, of a device to continue life seems to be the basic game, you know, and... You had said something a little bit earlier about beings who are perceptual. You know, it seems like all of them are. You know, per- perception is a prerequisite for being. Right. And that makes a lot more sense as an evolutionary driver than randomness and mutation, as far as I can tell. Right. It's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out because scientific revolutions are. I think Thomas Kuhn, he wrote this book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, where he says basically you know, scientific progress proceeds one coffin at a time, something like that. It's like right. The old guard has to pass before the new ideas can can come in. In some ways, you know, maybe it should be that way. It kind of it filters out ideas that don't have longevity. Right. And it, it's like only the the ideas that really keep knocking on the door and just won't quit are the ones that eventually get admitted into the the <laughs> canon, you know. Hopefully that. Uh, hopefully we aren't going to be putting fascism in that category because it seems to keep knocking on the door. Well, that's <laughs> not to change the subject. Well, it's not. Cha- but that's not changing the subject. It's actually completely in line with the subject because right. it's an it's a question of okay, how would we represent fascism in evolutionary terms? This is excellent. This comes back to where the word meme came from originally. Mm. The word meme is an idea um, existing in a Darwinian sense in a social construct. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's an abstracted gene. Right. There you mm-hmm. go. I like that a lot. I think aspect. that's actually – I think <laughs> that, that meme was a coinage by Dawkins and that mm-hmm. that's what he was basically saying is like – it's kind of an immaterial gene, and it gets passed on just like genes do, and it undergoes similar types of transformations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it certainly plays <laughs> plays a major role in what ends up occurring. Right. Yeah, it seems like the world had had enough of fascism at the end of World War II. Well, just because we don't want it doesn't mean that it goes away. You know, it's like yeah. anything else. The the conditions that bring it about are are really what's what's the question. And well, clearly there's some people that want it badly. Well, or is it just an emergent property property of of, of humanity in some fashion? I we think have that's to keep, we probably, have to keep revisiting this corner of possibilities. Well, here we go. So, what is it? Exactly. You know, how do we? Well, that's how, a good question. How do we? People define? will people will not agree on that if we. <laughs> if we don't put a gun to them to their heads and tell them this is what it is. <laughs> well, one of the most um, interesting definitions I've heard, I believe it was Mussolini's definition. It's the alignment of corporate and state interests. 
Uh-huh. I like that in, I like that definition because it's a simple one to start with with people. Mm-hmm. And um And so if you think about what that means, so It means that we've been there for a long time whether we call it that or not. <laughs> well, I think that's true, but the thing is of course with the changing times, yeah. it has a different meaning because networks, the the properties of a network change according to the number of nodes in it right. and the number of connections between the nodes. Mm-hmm. So as the species has expanded, the consequences of uh, corporate, which basically means large groups with a common interest, right? Mm-hmm. And state, which basically means uh, the power and and in more specifically the power to do violence, right? Right. So sanctioned violence and uh, and corporate interest, mm-hmm. you know, aligning. You know, it's it's very much like an organism that develops an immune system, and it says these are the things that are admissible for the functioning of my operations, mm-hmm. right? And these are the things which are not admissible, and so I'm going to stamp them out, get them out of my body, my corpus, right? Mm. The corporation is a very similar type of thing. It's a, uh, a functioning entity with uh, a loosely unifying kind of set of principles, uh, not unlike an organism, basically. Right. And it has to deal with things which are hostile towards it, just like any organism does. Right. It, it occurred to me recently, I wonder if pathogens were defenders of liberty in the process of, <laughs> like, they, they were just so offended by the idea of the corporate nature of biology that had come up and it offended their sense of personal liberty that they devoted themselves to trying to tear apart the body multiple right? cellular <laughs> organisms yes. they were like they're like pathogens are like the terrorists of the bio- biological corpus something like that <laughs> you know well uh, i guess i guess the people who define what terrorists are um, well, that's an interesting can thing too. With that question, right? They're now trying. Trump is trying to say that the Antifa people are going to be labeled as terrorists. Right. Yeah. So that 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 fits in perfectly with the model that we're discussing here. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> it's hard to know how to how to position oneself within this kind of situation. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I'm definitely not on the side of the fascists, but I'm also not on the side of Antifa. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that I don't think you can solve these kinds of problems with violence. I think that the well, they don't have any record of violence. Well, not a court. No, apparently they do. Well, it's it's a okay. So <clears throat> if I were the people that were doing things that the, the Antifa people are are trying to prevent. It would be very easy for me to slip a few operatives into their organization and incite some violence on their behalf. Oh, yeah. Uh, but you know I, what I mean? I'm saying that this is this is going on, has been going on. We know about this going on um, by the government, the FBI, the CIA, anybody who's got any kind of 
covert. The police off, you know, police do it. It's it's very much part of the playbook. It's it's a version of a false flag. But that, but that also means that attack. that's that's what happens when you get groups who are trying to achieve objectives. They mm-hmm. get they get um, co opted. They get. Uh, Sure. They become a tool of the thing that they're fighting against. And that's why fighting against is a problem because you mm-hmm. fight against something. Then well, that might have been your original point. I can't yeah, that, that's sort you. of what I was saying. And, <laughs> and yeah, probably not saying in the best way, but it, it's ineffective. That's basically what I'm saying. It doesn't, right. it doesn't get the job done. So why do it? Right? This and, is what I've been saying about the Extinction Rebellion. Which is, okay, super gluing yourselves to buildings is going to get some people's attention. It got my attention. I'm like, well, right on. People are getting riled up. But actually appealing to the powers that subsist on the industrial military petroleum machine that has been built to maintain their power to somehow stop doing what they're doing is not what's going to work. They never have stopped doing what they're go- doing. They're not going to stop doing what they're doing just because you super glue yourself to one of their buildings. <laughs> right. I'm sure they're I'm sure they're amused in some way, but I'm not well, but it also, that they're it, all that concerned. It about provides it. them with excellent fodder for their propaganda machine mm-hmm. because they can basically point to you know, it's like these people are getting in the way of us getting our business done, like good, lawful, tax paying uh, hard-working Americans are being inconvenienced by their, you know, uh, wacky ideas, mm-hmm. and and uh, and we They're just blocking we, the streets. Yeah, we can't tolerate this kind of stuff anymore. But you know, the the other thing that's uh, come up recently that's interesting to consider is that some of these groups may have no grassroots whatsoever, like. Nowadays, it's really easy for anyone who is a power player, who has a lot of resource, to throw a few million dollars in any direction they want to. And and that's useful because they can basically create groups that will fulfill various social functions as needed, on an as-needed basis. So, you know, if they have no particular ideological center, they just have a set of of objectives that they're shooting for. It doesn't matter what group it is, right? The Koch brothers, they, they fund not just right-wingers. They fund, they fund the left as well, right? So memes are useful tools. And if you can get people hooked on memes, then you have a group that you can utilize to uh, influence, influence events and policy ultimately, mm-hmm. right? So there's a guy uh, who's done a lot of. I think we talked about Adam Curtis, who did the um, Century of the Self. Century of the Self. Mm-hmm. So he gives a talk at some film festival or something like that about this guy in Russia whose name is Alexander Dugan. Mm. And Dugan was like a punk rock guy in the '80s who figured out that he could have a political career because he knew all these different sort of like subterranean organizations. And so he's like really close with uh, skinheads and, you know, uh, far leftists and fascists. Mm -hmm. Like he knows Mm -hmm. all these different organizations. And he's kind of like 
what Adam Curtis says, and this is not how he presents himself publicly, but this is what Adam Curtis says he's doing. He presents himself publicly, Alexander Dugan does, as sort of a philosopher, and he's written a number of books that are really freaking, you know, they do tread a really close line to fascist propaganda. Mm-hmm. But what Curtis says is that actually he has no ideological interest in anything whatsoever. His whole thing is basically wholesaling various groups that are organized around memes for political function. So if you need to get a bunch of crazy skinheads out in the street creating uh, a, a story that mm-hmm. can then be reported on and can then influence policy, he can make that happen. And if, if you want leftists doing it, if you want any kind of group, if you want it gender-oriented, it doesn't matter. He knows who to call in order to make it happen. You know? And so that if, you, if you start to think about that as a possibility, it actually makes the news make an awful lot more sense. You know, like I don't see why that's not what's happening most of the time when we're hearing a story. That's basically <laughs> what I – I mean, I can't – you can't prove it, but it seems like it just <clears> – it makes a lot more sense. You know, Some of the most important news stories, things that have happened in the world, have been completely or partially, to a significant degree, fabricated. Yeah. Now the question things is, that, stories that started wars, in right, particular, exactly. Yep. Are fabricated stories or created situations uh, with groups that have been, you know, put up to that. So then the question is, well, was it ever any different? <laughs> like. The lions and the gazelles. That's Uh when it was different. (laughs) I guess so. The gazelle starts running, the lion starts running. Somehow we got to here. (laughs) We got to here because we figured out how to farm food, I think. And once we figured out how to farm food, we figured out that having human slave labor was highly effective. Well, also, we built a lot of fences, which stopped the lions and the gazelle from free running. Yeah. So it just kind of like changed the whole nature of the game because you just you couldn't just run anymore. It's like, oh, fuck, you know, like, where are we going to run now? Right. The territory where you could run. So it's, we, we basically took over the earth. You yeah, know, we, and it started a long time ago when, when humans came to the northern or the uh, North American continent. Oh, I think there well were, before that. There were well, I was just, this is one point along the along the uh, the path, but when we came over, theoretically came over the Bering Strait and arrived in North America, there were many large species of of uh, mammals, yep. you know, kind of herd animal type things. And I think Jared Diamond talks about this in Guns, Germs, and Steel. They're like they were all wiped out within a few thousand years. Well, we had wiped them out in the other continents previously. Right. <laughs> you know, so it, it was just a process, a kind of a global process happening. I mean, Well, not to mention other hominid species. This is something that I didn't yeah. learn as a kid because I don't think they realized this yeah. yet. But what we're calling Homo sapiens theoretically wiped out not only Neanderthals but a number of other yeah. hominid species that were around simultaneously. Yep. And apparently Neanderthals were actually more peaceful, smaller groups, yeah. right? Which makes sense. That would make them more of a target, more, right. sus- you know, more susceptible. I mean, it seems to me that all these things are occurring on the basis of population pressures. That, that fundamentally, that's the thing that changes the, the game. When you have uh, 
a smaller number, there's less need, it's easier to maintain, it's easier to fit into an existing um, system, ecosystem, mm-hmm. social system, whatever it is. When pressures are building due to increased needs, then things have to change. And, and that seems to be the basic driver and cause of most of the difficulty, most of the trouble. <clears throat> Someone was just telling me a, story, uh, a theory about tribalism and brain size. I feel like this, this speaks to what you're, where you're going with this. Hmm. Um, and that some of these hominids had smaller group sizes based on their, their brain capacity. And Homo sapiens are up in the 150 member sort of tribe capacity where there's a, an efficiency of the connections uh-huh. um, where you know, there's few enough people that you get to know enough of them. You get to know everybody, but there's not so many people you get groups splintering off. Right. Uh, and factions forming that can't be reconciled. Huh. And uh, it seems like We've got this global culture that is is being pushed, where we're supposed to all be able to fit into some slot within a tribe that has a size of roughly all of us. Yeah, right. <laughs> and yet, the, the mind can't handle really more than a hundred some odd actual connections. Right. That's pretty much our our maximum capacity. Exactly. Yeah, it's bizarre. Um, I'm not sure what to make of it, but I do think that we're following the trend that led towards um, the formation of the of the corporate body. Basically, that right. that seems to be the basic trend. So the the individual cells eventually formed collectives that were so tight. These different collectives had different functionalities, which formed symbiotic relationships with each other and established the set of relations that when things became more difficult, when pressures build, then the what was previously voluntary relationships became uh, necessary, required. And that was the formation of a body, basically. Right. My poor liver cells do not have a chance to go over and be skin cells, no matter how much I damaged them earlier in my life. Well, but they all started supposedly as... as um, as uh, what do you call them? Stem cells. Stem cells, right? Right. So they have a common ancestor. It's really fascinating how much we've discovered, particularly in the in the field of biology, that hasn't quite led to the miraculous revolution in medical science. <laughs> that I, I, I'm not sure what it's going to be. Well, it seems like you know. But we still haven't solved cancer. You know, it's just well to the extent that that we don't want to to be a fascist species, uh-huh. there's probably been this unspoken, but at this point pretty obvious effort on the part of those entrusted with medical knowledge to not really address the fundamental issue. Because if people were given the best of health, then we would have even worse of a population problem, and the drive towards fascism would be even stronger. So, Do you, so it sounds like what you're saying is that part of the drive towards fascism, at least, is 
a reaction to population pressure. Yeah, I think so. And, and it has to do with uh, energy availability at a given time, like whether the, the sacrifices being made by those participating in the corporate structure produces a life that is in some way satisfying or at least tolerable. You know, and, and so you can see how that fluctuates a lot over time. And so it's not necessarily a direct population relationship. It's population in relation to energy, I think, is probably the best way to model it. But that's, you know, it's when those, those pressures start to be brought to bear, and they can be artificially created, too. Sure, exactly. So if you have an organization and you want to kind of get them riled up, you just kind of curtail. That's why a lot of people talk about artificial scarcity and that sort of thing. you got to wonder, like, the extent to which things are throttled on purpose or not, but... You know, it seems isn't like that what isn't that another term for the, another meaning for the term government to throttle? Well, to, I mean, to, ideally, to slow the process progress of something. You put a governor on your vehicle; you can only drive fifty miles an hour. That's, well, that's true, right? <laughs> that is true. <clears throat> well, I guess yeah. Certainly, imposing limits is a a feature of government. But you know, of course, it's limits on who. Right? <laughs> is it equally distributed? <laughs> Yeah, I guess limits on thought also seem to be one of the things that get imposed under certain circumstances. And that seems to be, getting back to the previous topic, one of the evolutionary dynamics that undermines these uh, corporate efforts. Because it's that openness to the new thing that's not being considered that allows for the adaptive evolutionary change that is necessary for a, a common mind to move a large organization into the future. So the memes have to develop with the changing times, right? And so if you're going to throttle uh, the admissible thought, then you're basically, you're cutting off evolutionary potential for the group, you know? Mm-hmm. And of course, that could be done on purpose as well. You know, it all depends on what we're hoping for. It's a difficult situation if if it is the case that our present populations are creating the pressures that will lead us towards some kind of fascism or another word for it I think is maybe more in line with what we're seeing happen, uh, surveillance capitalism. Mm-hmm. That's what Slavoj Žižek calls it, and he sees China and Singapore kind of as models for how that's working and what we can expect in the future around the world in order for things to survive. Very tightly controlled, but fundamentally capitalist in the sense of exploiting resource for profit. Maintaining the illusion of separation between corporation and state. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, I'm not sure how much that's the case in China. I think everyone understands that in China, the state's hand is in everything. Mm-hmm. But to the extent that, that at least within whatever's permissible by the parameters of the state, you can operate as a free entity. I mean, that is some degree of, of independence, and that's basically what most governments do. There are certain things that are outside of what's permissible. That's sure. governance, right? And so regardless of what government it is, no matter what entity it is, unless it gets a special exemption, 
and those <laughs> those are granted from time to time. Uh, it has to operate within those parameters. But I don't know, you know, th- th- that uncomfortable place that we seem to be really butting up against right now can only be solved by the acceptance of a decreased individual liberty across the board. So, I mean, on a certain just very, very basic level, if you look at it as a schematic, the larger the population, the less individual liberty, right? That's why we're social creatures to begin with. We started to have numbers where it was like, you can't just do whatever the fuck you want to. You have to follow some basic guidelines like thou shall not kill, right? Now, you know, they meant thou shall not kill the people who are in our group. Right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And some some of us got the idea like, oh, they meant that for everyone, you know? And so we started to get this uh, sense of universal consciousness and a sense of planetary-wide consciousness. And all of that, I think, has been some of the really good effects of this socialization drive. So it's not like it's all bad, you know? Right. There's actually some amazing things that have happened as a result of this. And I don't think that it's a lost cause either. I think that the... You know, it's wide open. Lots of different things could happen from here. Well, it almost seems like we we have to go through this phase so that we don't have to go through this phase. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and it's we, like and we aren't we, we we haven't been out of this phase for ten thousand years. You know, it depends it depends on how you want to measure when it's started. Yeah, but, and and it's like. I think that that things are in process, and so you're seeing a phenomena for a long period of time, and it kind of reaches ahead. And it, it feels like that's where we're moving into now. We're moving into a period where things are reaching ahead. The exponential curves that have been fairly level, horizontal looking for a long time are starting to hit their inflection point and go Exactly. Vertical. So, yeah, inflection point, <laughs> and, and that means that there will be a change in the game. Wherever there's an inflection point, it's going to be a different story at mm-hmm. some at some point here out. So I think it's quite likely we're going to see something similar to what happened in microbiology, that you had the establishment of corporate structures where freedom was sacrificed in exchange for maintaining large populations and relative safety. But you still had individual single-celled organisms that had their freedom independence. You know, there's plenty of those still around. So I'm imagining that we might see a kind of bifurcation in the species, that there'll be some who um, corporatize and others who maintain a degree of independence. You know, I mean, the whole biosphere is interdependent, so it's all relative. You know, there's a lot of different levels of cooperation and independence, and nothing is truly independent. Everything relies on something. All living species have some kind of interrelationship. So it's not as cut and dry as I'm making it look, but you you have to have a model in order to make sense of it. We're putting a filter on. but so yeah, it seems like that's the you know, and then then the question comes kind of like I think of the Harry Seldon thing, you know, the uh, foundation and empire, and it's like how do you do that without it being a complete clusterfuck, right? Mm-hmm. How do we how do we move into the beyond the inflection point without it being a completely miserable hellish experience for most of life on the planet? That seems like a pretty good goal, you know. Right. I mean. I often will ask people, like, you know, if if you were an alien and you were, came to the Earth and you s- stood on the moon and you just watched what was going on down here, 
for a while, what would you say our purpose was? Right. <laughs> what is the purpose of the human species? What is its own self-proclaimed purpose, if not its exteriorly kind of assessed purpose? Well, it seems like purpose fundamentally comes about in relation to other phenomena. So, like the purpose of the lung, it doesn't really have a purpose by itself, but within the body it does. It's all about right? context, right? Yeah, so it's... it's this is why it, I say stand on the moon, because when you're on Earth, you're, you're stuck in the context of whatever your individual right. circumstances are, whatever the circumstances of your group, your nation, you know, the weather that day. But if you're on the moon and, and you're an alien, yeah. uh, so it's like if you're not in this context and you're able to look at it all and see, okay, this is studying us like, a, like you'd study an anthill. Yeah. Right. I'd, I'd say that the purpose is the, the purpose of humanity. Obviously, is to transform the earth. Right into what? Um, well, we don't know yet. <laughs> you know, it's, what, what the hell are they doing down there? Definitely, it's, like, <laughs> it's hard to say. You they're know, definitely like, shitting where they eat. Well, I mean, okay, we started by <laughs> not shitting where we ate. You know, that was one of our main rules, right? So. And so. You know, now, like, the shit piles are a lot bigger, and there's a lot of different types of shit. It's not just our own bodily shit, but right. it's all the various, you know, the industrial chemicals nuclear. and all the various byproducts of civilization and technology. And, yeah, it's kind of leaking into everything, right? It's So what did I hear recently? Like, there's little bits of plastic that we're breathing in no matter where the hell. Even in frickin' Antarctica, I think there's, like, some number of... I can't remember what it is. Let's say 100 parts per million or something of right. little bits of plastic just getting into everything. And, of course, all those things are endocrine disruptors and blah, blah, blah. And it goes on forever, right? The, of course, these are studies that are being reported for reasons I don't know. And I didn't do the studies and I didn't see the results. And I don't know how the technology works that actually does the sampling. And, and if, makes it, the if it actually is <laughs> true, it seems like... It's in the category of things that we clearly aren't going to do something about right away because it would affect oil well, companies. How could we? Oil. I mean, think think of all the shit that we've already excreted into the environment. That's it's like irretrievable. How the hell would we ever kind of? And where would we bring it back to? Because basically, it's like <laughs> you know, we could try to jettison it and put it on the moon, and they would be like, "Oh, well, I guess you're." So now we know what the job of the species is: is to take all the shit that you created on the planet Earth and put it somewhere else. You know, we're not going to do that. We don't have a tendency to... And life in general doesn't really clean up after itself. It's like, I wonder what the hell my chickens would do if I didn't clean out that coop after... You know, it's like, would they just continue to live in that coop for forever until, like, shit was covering their perch? Or would they just... I mean, I think probably in the, in the wild, eventually they would just say, you know what, this place stinks. Let's go somewhere else. And they just leave it there. And that's pretty much the way we are, too. It's pretty much the way that, yeah, they soil the nest and then move on. <laughs> well, know? and so this... Just, that's, I mean, that brings up so many directions I could go. You know, there's the whole science fiction kind of concept of, well, are we... You know, going to destroy the planet um, before we get to leave it and go destroy other planets. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, uh, Asimov wrote a great one called Nemesis. It was basically that that question. You know? Huh. Interesting title. Yes. Huh. You know, because um, 
and it's it's revisited in, in pop culture too. I mean, it's the idea of the Matrix and and you know the human species being a virus essentially right. if you analyze it. Um, but is it really substantially different in, in in you know maybe in terms of time scale? Like we're really quick and going about it at a faster clip than any other species could. But don't most species fundamentally erode their environment? I mean, there is an inter- interdependency and a way in which, like, the natural world tends to to recycle itself. But I think there's you know, a critical ev- mass of Earth. But evolutionarily speaking, like, if it's true that we started with single cells and we had these like ancient organisms that were, you know, trilobites and what have you, and 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 so many species that have kind of passed by the way, it's like, well. You know, they existed at a certain point in time where there was a condition that would allow them to live the lives they did. They converted the energy available to them at that time into something that was toxic to them. And so they soiled their environment and were no longer able to thrive the way they once were. And they had to turn into something else. They had to innovate and find some new way of being able to convert the material that was around them into... A usable form. Well, and at, at various times, it was the life itself on the planet that was creating a complete transformation of the biochemistry on the planet. Like, yeah. Like you're saying, but it was actually that that waste product was oxygen at one point. Right. Exactly. That's and what. That's how we got. That's how we got oxygen because of, of of a byproduct, a waste byproduct of early microbes. Yep. And that that might have been one of the first primary transformations that occurred, you know. So then, then you know, on the moon we could be looking down, going, "Oh, life in general is transforming the Earth, and that species is doing it faster than any of the others." It's right. Like, we're just you know doing it super on. good at transforming <laughs> shit, uh, which only means that we create a uncomfortable situation for ourselves more quickly than a lot of other organisms might. Mm-hmm. You know, although, you know, maybe that's not a good way of saying it because we developed sanitation techniques. So we've actually kind of learned how to push all that stuff to the periphery better than a lot of other organisms have. You know, they would usually just, you know, many of them would just live in their own shit. (laughs) And I guess that was good for the immune system to some extent. Well, there's a certain function that the non-biological parts of the of the planet's dynamics take care of in terms of waste recycling. Say that again. I didn't quite follow that. So <clears throat> people talk about water being an issue. We're going to run right. out of water, right? When you're standing on the moon and you're looking at the planet Earth and you just look at the physical processes of evaporation and weather... The planet is a, and rivers running back to the sea, the planet is a great big machine for recycling water. Right. It's making all the water clean all the time right. on its own. If we have come to the point where we've actually soiled things so badly, or we've put ourselves into such densities at certain points on the planet that we have existential crises around the availability of fresh water, mm-hmm. um, that's that's it. That's the that's the tipping. That's the inflection point mm, right. where we have actually soiled things enough that our population is is not going to be able to grow further right. with current kind of practices. And I feel like that 
the ingenuity of humanity and the technological the technological capability of just what we're able to conceive, let alone implement, um, means that there's there's plenty of opportunities to push things back in a different direction. Technically, I think, technically I, speaking, I think that's a really important point. Politically, that, no. Well, not, I'm, I'm not, not right now. I'm not sure that anything ever gets accomplished politically. I feel like politics is basically a gigantic waste of energy. It it's just, people in power using their influence in one realm to affect an outcome in another realm. Yeah, pretty much. It's, a, it's an exercise in those with power acquiring more power. Um, and it's all in the context of being able to treat the rest of us as if we're basically farm animals. And and to make us feel as if we're somehow or another playing a role in the process of, of the political machinery. Exactly. And yeah. it's very it's very well designed. It's a it's a deep psychological well, it's adaptive. program. It's yeah. an adaptive it, you know, it's a way of managing uh, large populations. So if I'm standing back on the moon <laughs> and I'm looking down on the planet Earth I might have an, another model when I'm looking at, at humanity because it, it isn't just these trilobites that are doing their thing everywhere. Uh-huh. Um, it's some very distinctly identifiably different groups of humanity. How do you mean? Well, there's basically the people that have a lot of power and then there's all the right. rest of us. Right. And... If I'm an alien standing on the moon, I might actually recognize some of those powerful people as my friends that are other aliens, if I'm one of those people that believes that aliens are running the show, right? <laughs> but if, I, if that were the case, it would be a different story. It wouldn't be the story of, oh, this is what this species is doing on the planet because this is where evolution has brought things and what this species does right. and how it transforms its environment. or and Then it would be more of a managed species. It would be of more thing. of a, this is be like a, how this farmer happens to raise his cows right. on this pasture. Well, it's sort of like um, Childhood's End, right? You know that one, Arthur C. Clarke with the... the uh, that's, a, that's a worthwhile science fiction book to check into. It's, uh -huh. it's basically about how... Things are getting out of control on planet Earth, and the spaceships show up, and the overlords come down and say, "Okay, uh, we're taking over now. You know, <laughs> uh, you guys are going to just screw this shit up." So we're we're your new overlords, and uh, they make it very clear that we have no say in the matter, and they set up some kind of a. Um, it's like an emissary, so there's like one person who communicates with them directly and then that person kind of communicates with humanity and and one of the main features of the thing is that they won't allow themselves to be seen so for a very long time like it's like a certain number of generations have to go by before they'll allow their physical beings to be seen and it's sort of an interesting little twist on what it is that they look like i'm not going to I think I've I'm heard it. I've, I've heard it. At least that bit yeah, of information. I've, I've heard about this. And then it's the book gets really interesting. Like it has to do with how the children are behaving because basically everything is running uh, smoothly and human beings don't have to fight and we don't have to worry about shit. And so everyone's like, you know, making art and music and just sort of, and they kind of, human beings sort of lose their purpose. They're like a little bit 
confused and they don't quite have the jing, the, the, uh-huh. the essence and vitality that they once had. And the children start to go off into a completely different kind of territory. And it's just a really interesting book. And it has that essential concept in it that, that fundamentally humanity is managed by a higher intelligence and that we can't understand why they're making the decisions they are because we're just not capable of understanding the situation. Because we don't have that bird's eye view from, you know, the moon or from Mars or from a different galaxy, you know. Right. So, and even they, one of the interesting things also is that even the overlords say, we don't really fully understand either why it is that we're doing what we're doing because we're being told to do it by some other, like, you know. Oh, we're just, you know, we're kind of mid-level. We're mid-level <laughs> managers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> Well, I mean, that's what that's what a, a figurehead of a government is in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what Trump is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm some some combination of efforts to portray him have resulted in many people thinking that you know he's got some grandiose ideas of his own level of uh, power or um, persuasiveness, but. He couldn't be in that position if there weren't lots of powerful people that were making some money on it. Yeah. Or getting, and getting what they want out of it. No doubt. No doubt. And I don't think that it's uh, necessarily the case that those who claim to be against him actually are. No, there's um, a, lot of, a lot of really confusing sort of things going on now. It's really difficult to tell what people want, what we ought to do about it. Well... You know, we, we run the risk of, of this podcast degenerating into a political conversation. Right. We've already spoken for 56 minutes, and I, I want to resist that temptation because it never it's never worthwhile. Right. But, but there is one thing I'd like to – because there was something you, you pointed out that I think is really worth kind of revisiting. Uh, and, you know, when we're, when we're trying to – understand the situation and you frame it in somewhat objective terms and say, well, we can view our activity on this planet as being essentially like any other biological organism. And uh, so in a certain sense, we fit in with the overall model of life. That's not to say that we necessarily made all the right calls and that it couldn't have been done differently or that it couldn't be done differently now. You know, so the potential for things being done in a new way, particularly at an inflection point, you know, is uh, is always there, and is in some respects the thing that's worth living for. You know, because of course there are many things to be thankful for in this world. You know, we're not living in hell right now. I mean, there are some people who are close to it, but you know, there is. By some, you know, some people say, and it's hard for me to verify this, that this is actually on a net basis one of the best times to be a human being on the planet. I just don't, I don't know how you evaluate that, but I know that it's one of the common memes out there. Like Steven Pinker is a big advocate for this idea that we're doing better now than we ever have, folks. Don't worry. We're like on the heading in the right direction. So I'm suspicious of that, but I also think that to some extent it's obviously true, you know, that, that, Global violence is actually a lot lower than it has been in the past. And given the number of people that we are on the planet, many of us are able to meet our basic needs relatively easily. 
and to have a certain degree of enjoyment in life. So it's not as if we're all just completely in misery. And there are people who are in misery, so we're not, I'm not diminishing that at all, just saying, you know, there are some good things about this world. It could all go to shit, but it could also perhaps, if we take a step back and try to see things a bit more clearly and have an openness to that realm of the unknown where new ideas come in, maybe we can find a way of actually making this a better deal for everyone, no matter which way you go, whether you become part of the corporate uh, surveillance capitalist mechanism, or if you're playing even an ancillary role on the fringes of that as an independent player. You know, maybe we can find a way of doing this without it turning into hell. God, you know, (laughs) God willing, that that is the way that we, we might all hope... You know, I don't want to get into this whole thing, like, you know, like the new age thing. Like, if we just all really wish really hard and pray, that, <laughs> you know, but yeah, I think intention does play a role. So it seems like it's worth having all of that first and foremost in the mind and close to the heart. Something like that. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> well, that was, that was an hour right there. And that was a lot okay, of fun. So there we have it, folks. That's the end of the first section. So in the uh, overtime, available to those of you who sign up with Patreon, we cover some of the following subjects. Nested consciousness, karma in politics, artificial or natural civilization cycles, the destructive logic of pyramid power, how the underclass serves the interest of the 1%, albeit on a temporary basis, the craziest Wolf of Wall Street story yet, some of the recent takedowns of leviathans, corporate capital punishment, social self-consumption, disposable culture leading to disposable humans, the eternal observer in the face of ever-transforming material, holding the cosmos together, meditating with love for God, the Rumsfeld epistemological hypothesis, the Alan Watts conspiracy theory, and the destruction of a common truth, just to name a few. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home.